Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today I'm joined by Chef Ron Sue, culinary director for Lazy Betty and the upcoming Juniper Cafe. An Atlanta native, Sue returned after rising in the ranks at Michelin star Le Bernardin to open a tasting menu-only concept, Lazy Betty, which was named the 2020 James Beard Award semifinalist for Best New Restaurant. The restaurant was awarded three-star reviews from both the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Atlanta Magazine. It was also named Best New Restaurant by Atlanta Magazine and Restaurant of the Year by Eater Atlanta. Lazy Betty was also included in national lists like Condé Nast Traveler's 22 Best Restaurants in Atlanta and Thrillist Best New Restaurants 2019. Family has always been at the center of what Chef Sue does. In the past few years, Sue opened an award-winning tasting menu restaurant, lost his mother, who was the matriarch of his family and namesake for his restaurant, became a father, and figured out how to have a fine dining restaurant in a pandemic. We talk about what it was all like and what is ahead for him. Hi, Ron. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Very excited to uh, partake in your new podcast. Well, I'm really fascinated by you as a chef. I've been following your career for a while. In full disclosure, I did go to high school with your brother, who was a partner in your restaurants. But I really wanted to talk to you about your story. And I guess let's start at the beginning. Um, When did you know that food was going to be a big part of your life? I think the revelation happened to me when I was going to um, University of Georgia. I was in my third year of school and I was in the Terry School of Business. And I never liked going to any of my classes. I was just doing barely enough to get by. I never felt motivated. And and I was going through my, my quarter-life crisis at that time, and my roommate suggested that I should consider taking up uh, cooking as a professional career. And it never dawned on me to really consider it uh, because my parents owned Chinese restaurants, and I just assumed that they did not want me to fall into the same situation that they did running the restaurants and, you, you know, because it was so stressful for them, and it caused a lot of heartache and you know, so much tension in our family growing up uh, that I just assumed she wanted me to, you know, have a different career path. Uh, but I thought about it and I and I suggested it to my mom uh, and she was like, yeah, do it. You should stop wasting your time in college and drop out and go to culinary school. So when she told me that, that's when I was like, all right, this is something that I'm really going to really think about before I commit to culinary school since she's giving me so much support. Can you tell people that might not know about your mom, her story? Yeah, my mom was is the third oldest of eight children. She's the second oldest daughter. Uh, she is Chinese, uh, but born in Malaysia. Um, and she immigrated over here in the 60s with basically $20 in her pocket. Uh, worked as an au pair in San Francisco, saving money and also learning English. Uh, and then once she had saved up enough money and got the right opportunity, she moved to, to Georgia with two children. I wasn't born yet. So it was my sister who must have been no more than maybe one year old. And my brother was maybe three. Um, and they moved over to Georgia uh, because they got an opportunity to be partners in a Chinese restaurant uh, in, in Stone Mountain. And she took she took that opportunity. And you know, she, and then, and then I, and then I was born. Um, but basically my mom, um, 
you know, ended up my immigrating all her other seven siblings and other uh, relatives over here from Malaysia. And, wow. and, and so she was kind of a pioneer, not just because of, you know, her opening up a Chinese, she, she opened up the first Chinese restaurant in Henry County, Georgia. Um, so she was a pioneer, not in terms of just a food sense. Um, and, but she also immigrated a bunch of her, of my aunts and uncles over here. Um, and she was the first one of her family to kind of seek a different life away from, and she was to really look, push for the American dream back then, right? Like she knew it was a land of opportunity and she, she was kind of a progressive in her family and pushed, um, and pushed her family and, you know, in generations after that to kind of end up t taking up roots here in, um, in the Southeast. And she brought, I mean, a lot of people. I remember reading that you, you said it was almost like rearranging sleeping arrangements because you're always accommodating somebody who she was kind of helping get off their feet. Right, yeah. So something that she did a lot was whenever she had a new employee, like a server or a chef or anyone within the restaurant, you know, hierarchy, She, if she... If someone came over and needed a little help to kind of get on their feet, um, she would let them stay in our house for months on end. Um, I, I would come home from school many times, and she on the on the on the ride home, she'd be like, "Ronald, I just want you to know, like today we're gonna have a new family stay with us um, for you know two two months, four months, six months, maybe a year, whatever it was, and you're gonna have to either sleep with on your brother's couch or in your grandmother's room or." you know, in our room on, on the floor for a little bit. Um, but we're going to help this family get on their feet so that they can kind of get their life going and we're, we're going to take care of them. Um, so yeah, that happened. That happened quite a bit with my mom. So what was her first restaurant? Her first restaurant, I believe was called Imperial Garden. Uh, and that was in Stone Mountain. And she partnered with some friends. You Is know, that where and, you guys grew up in Stone Mountain? At first, but then we ended up moving to Henry County. So when, when she eventually opened up Hunian Village, which I think was the next job opportunity she had to be the full-on owner of, um, I think she, she bought the, the existing restaurant from somebody else and was her own manager at that time and no longer had partners. Um, that's when we moved from uh, Stone Mountain to, to um, Stockbridge, Henry County. So yeah, that's kind of how that evolution happened. How did your mom inform your relationship with food? I mean, is she a big reason that you are a chef? She's definitely the one of the inspirations that keep me motivated as a chef. Uh, she she did not really impact me so much directly in terms of how I approach food, but more about hospitality. I think the way she extended our home to strangers, uh, friends of friends, relatives, distant relatives. Uh, growing up and just welcome them into our daily, our daily life. You know, she, they would sit down at our dinner table after working all week at the restaurant. And, you know, they really became an extension of our family. And I think that kind of hospitality that my mom showed people is really what drives me to, to have, to run a restaurant. The, I use those principles that she instilled me to make sure I offer the same hospitality to the people that come through our doors. Um, and, you know, food just happens to be the medium that, that we use to kind of express that hospitality and, and our service too. So in that, in that regard, that's how uh, my mom has been a big influence.
but it is also a family business. Your brother at Howard and sister Anita have their own business, Sweet Auburn, and their partners in Lazy Betty and Juniper. Is that correct? Yes, they are more. Um, they're they're more silent, but they are they do help. They are kind of a sounding board whenever I have questions or if they see issues, I'll definitely bring them to light. But you know, for the most part, they kind of let me just drive the drive the concept and operate it. Um, but they're always there to help me whenever I need. Uh, and yet, yes, they are partners. So, speaking of partners, you met your partner Aaron Phillips, Chef Aaron Phillips while you were in New York. Can you tell me about your time in New York and how you guys met? Sure. So we both met at La Bernadette, which is where we ended up uh, as sous chefs at, at our at different points in our careers there. Um, I think when Aaron, when I first met Aaron, I was already a sous chef at La Bernadette and he came and did his stage. And, you know, I just liked him. I thought like the way he worked, we clicked right away. Uh, and, you know, he ended up taking the job at La Bernadette and did his thing and worked his way up to a sous chef. Uh, and we were only sous chefs together for a very short amount of time, but our relationship, once we stopped working together, still carried on outside of the, um, outside of the kitchen. Um, I, I held some pop-ups in New York in random places. And he was always one of the first people that I called to kind of help me with these pop-ups. Um, and, you know, we, we were also very good friends. We, you know, we were chefs, so we got into a lot of late, 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 sh late night shenanigans in New York. You know, <laughs> I can so, imagine what yeah. what years were this? What what was that like being a young chef in New York, oh, working at Le Bernardin? I'll be honest, it was. When I reflect back, I don't know how I did it. I think I was just super young and super hungry, and you know, I never, I didn't really have a serious girlfriend until my lad, who is now my wife, Jackie. Uh, who I met at the later stages of my New York, my career in New York. So like, I I was just so like career minded, and I didn't mind working seventy to eighty hours a week. You know, when I first started at Liberton, I was only making eleven dollars an hour. Um, I had saved up money to kind of help me make sure I can make it in New York for a few years. Um, and I'll be honest, when I reflect, I'm like, I don't know how I did seventy hours a week there and managed to like. Whoa party as much as I did and have a social life. And, you know, when I think back now, I'm just like, I, I just did a lot of stupid things to my body and my brain that like, you know, when you're young, you just you you're, you feel like you're invincible in the world, your oyster. And I just and I did and I, I if, when I reflect back, I know it was only 10 years. But now that I think about it, I probably aged like 30 years when I <laughs> when I reflect back because it was just I was burning the candle on both ends, as they say, and it was just it was fun and it was it was very fast, but I learned a lot. When I worked garbage in San Francisco after culinary school, I mean, even after you get off your shift, you're still so hyper from the adrenaline that it takes you forever to come down. Yeah. It is it is an exhausting career. I mean, it is exhausting. But I have to imagine working at Le Bernardin under Eric Repair, who is just really a standard bearer, especially for French seafood in New York was really helpful in terms of gaining skills that you're still using today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think there's, there's for me, in order to be a successful person in any kind of field, you have to have developed a lot of different kinds of skills. And, you know, so specifically speaking about being a chef, you need to learn 
the actual trade skills, right? Like knife skills, how to feel heat, how to work clean and efficient, how to work collaboratively. And then, you know, it gets a little deeper as you get higher up the chain and you start working more high level stuff like how do you develop a menu? How do you set guest expectations? How do you organize your reservation so you can maximize revenue? Things like that, right? But then there's other skills that for me are the most more important ones, and those are the life skills. And I learned a lot of those uh, working one-on-one with Chef Repair that I was very blessed as with my role as um, the executive sous chef and a corporate kind of consultant chef for repair consulting. Um, I did a lot of menu development. I got to work with a lot of chef repairs, cookbooks, and TV shows. Uh, so I said you a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he, I, yeah, I guess he did. You know, but it, it wasn't it wasn't given to me. I, I spent a long time on the line and as a sous chef before you know getting getting to that level with chef repair. But it was a lot of those moments one on one with chef repair that I saw the bigger picture about things. And that's like how to treat your staff. Um, that re- isn't just how to treat employees. It's just really how do you treat people in general and how you approach navigating a career, right? Like when I talked to him about moving on and you know chasing other things, he was always like, got to make sure you do it for the right reasons, Ron. And you know, two things, if you ever told me that you were going to leave me for, it would be for y- your family or your friends. And he, like, ba- basically it was very family oriented kind of like, mm-hmm. I understand like I, th- if you were to tell me like you were going to go work at a cheesecake factory, I would be like, you're not that kind of chef and you're capable of much more than, you know, grilled chicken over Alfredo pasta. Uh, but if you told me you were moving somewhere because you're fa- you want to be close to your family, then I think that's right. Cause you have your, you have, you need to prioritize your life before you can prioritize your restaurant or your, your career. So little things like that was very important to me, you, you know, and the way he handled himself uh, with, you know, when you get to chef repairs level, you aren't just a chef anymore, right? You're, you're kind of a cultural icon. You deal with people from all sorts of walks of life and the way he carried himself um, and the way I, and, and I got to see a lot of it. It, it, it made me resonate like, right, I need to carry myself in that regard and I need to treat people that way. You know, and when I first started at Le Bernardin, you know, he he does come from the old school French brigade system with Robuchon, um, which is if you look at today's kitchens, like that that would be very frowned upon. You know how there's a lot of hazing; it's very cutthroat. Yes, uh, very, chef, and you have to yell, and it's very military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's brigade, right? It's military. It's like yeah. a military, exactly. But you know, mm-hmm. Chef Repair was very cognizant of that. He also had a different approach. He was like, look, if my staff isn't happy, how can they, how can we expect them to make the guests happy? And how can they make good food if they're not happy? You know? So mm-hmm. he made a very strong effort to change that mindset. Um, and it was already in process when I got there, but you know, there were still a lot of remnants of the old brigade system when I was there. And as I, and I was there for about, about, about 10 years. And for me to see it change from my first year to when I left, it was a huge change. Um, in the culture of Le Bernardine. So, you know, just seeing things like that um, really changed my outlook on not just a chef, but how to carry yourself through life. Yeah, I mean, he he was definitely an innovator, I do believe, um, in, in breaking from that really old school French mentality. But those are his masters, right? That's who he learned from. So it was mm-hmm. up to him or other chefs like Guy Savoie or other people to really evolve past that. So you left Le Bernardin and went to work on at Le Colonial in New York before moving down here, no? 
Yeah, I went to work at Le Colonial for two years, and then I actually went back to La Bernadette after I left Le Colonial because I wanted to get back into the higher end, more creative kind of platform that a higher end restaurant or Mm -hmm. fine dining tasting menu restaurant would allow me. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's right. And then what made you decide to move down to Atlanta? I just wanted to open up my restaurant. Um, There's a lot of reasons why I chose Atlanta. Obviously, first and foremost, it's my home. I wanted to be close to my family. Uh, so when I did tell Chef Prepare that, he was like, those are great reasons. Like, go be close to your family. It's important. He didn't really ask much about the type of restaurant I wanted to open up and, and all that. But, the, but you know, part of the reason I wanted to open up in Atlanta is I think there's a tighter community in Atlanta. Um, I also think... In the you know, culinary industry or just in general? In general, I think there's a, the community's a you know, it's tighter because it's smaller. People know each other um, on a first name basis. Uh, I think the first time I met you, you Jen, I, I knew who you were and, you know, I just chatted you up. I think in New York, if I had never been formally introduced to you, people would be like, who is this weird guy? Right. right? Like, <laughs> but I think because we were in a different setting with a lot of mm-hmm. friends we knew, mutual friends, mm-hmm. it, it closes that gap of formality that you would find in bigger cities. And that's a sen- that's the kind of service I wanted to be able to offer to my to our guest at Lazy Betty. Uh, we wanted to be able to do great food, great wine, great service, but break that barrier of that for that formal barrier that comes with a white linen, uh, white linen across the table, right? Um, servers in a black suit with ties. You know, when you have that kind of setting, it kind of puts up a little barrier. And I wanted to get rid of it and just be like, you know, I'm cooking, c- cooking for my community and and talk to people like they're my friends that I've known for 20 years. Like, cause at the end of the day, I spend more time in the restaurant than I do in my house. So it's like, I want, I want these people to feel like they're not just a customer, but more, you know, an extension of our family. And can you tell me about the conception and opening of Lazy Betty and why you named it that? Um, and about your partnership with Aaron to circle back to that. I mean, how how is your creative process as two chefs? Sure. So they're, 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 that's a very multi-layered question. So the first question is, how did Lazy Betty come to conception? So before I moved back to Atlanta, it's always been, I always knew I wanted to open up a restaurant. Uh, but the vision kind of honed in the closer I got to to basically... When I was ready to move, the vision had already kind of materialized. I was like, I know what I want to do. And that's when I pulled the trigger and left New York. Um, now, in terms of conceptualizing it, it took a lot of hard work. My background was a chef. Like, I never knew how to be an entrepreneur or businessman. So while I was doing my pop-ups in Atlanta, you know, doing recipe development, uh, starting to grow my my audience, um, you know, I worked on a business plan. I kind of took a crash course in finance. I asked all my friends I worked in in finance in New York, like, what do I need to do to raise money? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and I kind of did all that. Um, and I really taught myself, like, when I was writing my performer for Lazy Betty, I didn't even know how to use an Excel sheet. And I was literally putting, like, you know, A1 plus B1 equals whatever in each cell. And then my wife comes in, like, after months of me working on it, she's like, if you just click this little square at the bottom and drag it over, it, you can, <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, that's the game changer. And, but I was literally putting each formula into the cell, and that's how green I was at it, you know? And I was like, well, whatever. It's part of my growth as 
you know, if I want to be a chef, I need to grow as a businessman. And I, and that was my mentality. So that's kind of how the, how the restaurant actually came to be. Um, you know, I, I knew I was a good chef, but in terms of like business and admin and all that, that that's really what I was learning while getting the restaurant um, from conception to a brick and mortar. So what part did Aaron play in the opening? So Aaron really helped me hold down the pop-ups. Uh, he was my right-hand man, someone to lean on, because um, you can't, you know, you can't do anything by yourself in a restaurant. So, you know, just to have his moral support was very good. Um, I also had a child when we were doing the pop-ups. And, you know, when we were about six months into the pop-ups, we started getting a lot of traction. And I was ready to just be like, look, I'm having a child. I need to stop the pop-ups. And Aaron was like, look, we can't lose this momentum. And he was like, I'll do the pop-ups without you. So nice. I, I took a two-month paternity leave, and he held it down for me. And so, you know, I, we wouldn't be where we were without him today. And in terms of how, how we've worked, you know, that, that's and how our relationship has developed. You know, we basically have crossed every kind of relationship that a non-romantic relationship could have, right? <laughs> we've, we've been friends. We've, we've been colleagues. We've, been, we've kind of had a mentor-mentee relationship or mentor-apprentice relationship because of, you know, when he first started at Le Bernardin, he was just a cook. Um, and I was already a sous chef. And then now we've been business partners. So, like, we've crossed almost every gamut of relationships you can like so he's like chosen family at this point he's basically an extension of my family yes exactly and i'm like an extension of his family you know and and it's it wasn't always easy whenever your relationships evolves people's expectations evolve and you know you have to recalibrate and you people react differently to different situations you know that's just part of growing up and growing together right um and that's something that Aaron and I have learned, you know, how do we, Aaron and I know how to work together in terms of a kitchen, like, you know, he puts the salt, I put the pepper, right? But in terms of like being a business partner, it's much different and much more nuanced. And we're constantly learning how to kind of grow together and work together. Um, but it, it was very, very hard and very rocky. There's, for all the success we've had, we've had a lot of drama and stress behind the doors. So nothing, nothing good comes easily. You know, you gotta, you gotta put up with the good, before you can get to the, you got to put up with the bad before you can get to the good. And can you tell listeners why you named the restaurant Lazy Betty? Oh yeah, that was the other level. Yeah, so Lazy Betty is named after my mom. And so uh, when I was living in New York, I took a red eye home uh, for a long weekend to spend time with my family. And my sister came and picked me up. Uh, I think she probably picked him up around like two one thirty in the morning or something. And, you know, my mom was staying with my sister because uh, she was babysitting the kids. You know, I, she picked him from the airport and I went back to my sister's house because that's where I was staying for the weekend. And my mom was there and she had fallen asleep on my sister's couch with with like laundry sprawled all over the couch across her belly. And she had saliva coming down in her mouth. Oh and, you know, this was like, and my sister goes, yeah, that's our mom now. She's Lazy Betty. She's retired and she just let lazies around all the time. And I was like, Lazy Betty, that's kind of catchy, you know? And like I, Lazy Susan. Exactly. So, you, you know, and we thought the name had a cool ring to it. It didn't sound very pretentious. Um, it was also, you know, my mom is a big inspiration on how we like to, include everyone in the type of service we offer. Uh, and so we, we, we rolled with it. And, you know, if you, you've been into Dine at Lazy Betty, there's not much formality. And we like the name Lazy Betty. It doesn't sound frou-frou. 
um, or fancy. Um, and, you know, and we ran with it and it, it's, it's kind of stuck. We, we had a lot of other names out there, but it, Lazy Betty was the one that always stayed, stayed at, the, um, at the top of the list. So. I love it. And shortly after you opened Lazy Betty, your mother passed away. What was it like to lose her so quickly, too? I mean, that like year that I opened up the restaurant and my mother passed away was the by far the hardest year of my life. You know, and getting the restaurant up and running, people have no idea the sacrifices that I had to make, Aaron had to make, um, the fights that I got into my siblings and with Aaron and with my wife. You know, at one point, you know, my wife sacrificed her job um, to move down to Atlanta so that I could materialize a dream. And we had a lot of issues with financing. At one point, we were like, oh, my God, Lazy Betty's not going to open. She gave up her job. I don't I don't have my job at LaBernadette. Like, what are we going to do? So things were very dire. Um, but then we triumphed over that. We figured it out. And then four months later, my mom died. Um, it was a very abrupt death. You know, she had complained about body aches and fatigue. And we took her to the doctor numerous times. They were like, yeah, take her to the masseuse, get her muscles, her muscle aches worked out. The doctors were just like, you know, she's just being very active because she was also exercising. Um, you know, she was selling her artwork at the at local uh, farmer's markets and art, art and craft uh, trade shows. And she was, you know, she was old. So they were like, she's probably just fine. You know, my parents were also divorced. So we thought maybe she was just lonely. And that was part of the reason why she wasn't feeling great. So that was about a month out. And we, you know, we, we, we did all we could, um, but things got really bad. And so, you know, she complained of shortness of breath. And my, my cousin, who was a palliative care doctor, was like, take her to the ER. Um, and so we did. And they kept her and they diagnosed her with pneumonia. And, you know, they gave her some antibiotics, which helped her a little bit. And they sent her home. And so she was in the hospital after getting, after taking her to the ER, she was in the hospital for three days. And then she went home, got discharged. Um, and then the doctor that was in charge of her actually made a house call just because he was like, let me come in and check on your mom. And he did. And he was like, your mom, based on the medication we gave her, she should be doing much better. So he readmitted her. And then the second time she got readmitted, they, they did a CAT scan. And then that's when they told me, you know, they, that she had stage four cancer um, and that she didn't have much time to live. So when she got discharged from, or she, when she first got put into the ER, got sent home and back in, I think total time was about seven days and then she had passed away. Um, so it was a very aggressive cancer. Yeah. And it was, it was very tough. And I, I think I ended up not going back to work for about a month after that until I was ready. So. What, I mean, what was the light? Did it make you just not want to cook? No. Did you, were you just depressed? Were you just like creatively muted? I mean, another life lesson that I always look back on in terms of my career that really put things in perspective for me was my grandmother's death in, in New York. When I was working at Le Bernardin, I was already a sous chef. And that was the first lesson, real lesson that kind of helped me manage my career better. You know, people people give our their their like their lives to go work at Le Bernardin. Like they no joke literally move from across the world to go work at Le Bernardin for eleven dollars an hour, seventy hour work weeks. You're in a hot kitchen, you're it's getting all that. Yeah, it you know, they they do it. And a lot of times they would come to me and be like, Man, Ronald, you know, like I'm sorry I didn't my knife cuts weren't good today, like with tears down their eyes. And then after my mother my grandmother died, I was like, Man, like I'm 
and, and my grandmother dying was the first time someone close to me has died. And, and I was very close to my grandmother growing up as well. Um, but when she died, I, it kind of put things in perspective, like, and to me as well, like I took my job so seriously. I was so passionate. I, every time I messed up, I'd be upset. And when it, every time cooks would come up to me, they'd be upset. And I would, and it was something that I was losing. My grandmother taught me a real valuable lesson that has carried me a lot through my career. Um, and basically, you know, a lot of cooks take every little mistake that they make at LaBernard End so seriously, like literally tears coming down their eyes. And we're talking about things like, oh, I ran out of this mise en place um, and a sous chef had to make it for me. My onions were a quarter inch too thick. And after my grandmother died, I'm like, guys, like, listen, I love your passion and I love your heart here. But don't beat yourself this hard over it because you're not going to make it the next 30 years of your career if you're going to be this dramatic. Like, you should save these tears for your family or when something like that happens. It's good that you're aware of your faults, but, like, this cannot – you got to grow thicker skin. Be upset if you open up a restaurant and it closes because you, you couldn't get customers in there. That's a big deal. But these little knife cuts, like, 90% of your customers won't even realize that they're too long, right? Like, you, you know, and it helped them – help their, their longevity and their, their mental toughness, I would say. And it's something that helps me too, you know, like in a restaurant, you know, if, if you want, anytime a chef wants, they can go in a kitchen and find mistakes and problems. If you really want to, because it's so subjective, you know, and it can be anything from how someone's working to their, their product or their end time, their uniform. It could be so many things, but you can't let little things tear you down so much because there's at the grand scheme of things, there's life and, and you have to be able to navigate life. And so my, when my grandmother died, that was the first big lesson. And second, my mother. So I already learned what it felt like to lose someone very close and fast forward to my mother dying. It didn't really change my work. Uh, I just didn't go back for, uh, for a month. Um, I, and creatively, because I was still learning how to run a business, I was already stifled. Um, mm. and so, you know, I could always run a kitchen. Um, it's, I've been doing it for so long. Um, the only thing that it really kind of cemented when my mother died was like, I'm going to make lazy Betty mean much more. Cause that's her legacy. And again, you know? how many months after was it? It was four months. Wow. Yeah. And so still, even then you were able to, to turn it, you know, into something that won numerous awards. When I was on the committee for Best New Restaurants for Thrillist the year that it opened, I gave it Best New Restaurant in Atlanta. Yeah, thank you for um, that. That was great. I mean, it was earned. I mean, it was, right. there was nothing like it at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but back to just, you know, your mom being like such a force, did losing your mom make you reconsider anything about your career? No, if anything, it just made me dig in harder. Um, you know, my mom, what she accomplished, like, I, I think at one point she had five restaurants, didn't speak any English, had $20 to her name when she moved to America. I was like, I can't let this stop me. Like, if it was my mother, she would have she would have opened up her seventh restaurant by now, you know, her seventh Lazy Betty. And, and so I just used her as motivation to try to really make Lazy Betty. It just put a lot more meaning to everything that I did at Lazy Betty. I wasn't close with your brother, Howard, but I mean, you always remember the moms in your grade. And I remember because I was so food obsessed, even then being like, oh, <laughs> she, she has her own restaurant, you know, yeah. like I yeah. thought that was like so cool. Right. And like now that I'm a mom and I look back, like she always really was still there. She was 
present, even though she had all of this work. And I, I, I loved that little story that you used to get dropped off on the school bus oh, <laughs> to the yeah. restaurant. That's um, right. She, yeah, when I was, uh, when I was in public school, cause, uh, private school was a little too expensive at one point for us. She, she had to put me in public school and she, you know, and Howard and Anita were going to Woodward still. So there was no one at home to watch me. And I was the youngest of three. So she convinced the school principal to, to, to let the school bus or the driver drop me off at the restaurant instead of my, my normal bus stop because she needed to be able to take care of me. And in exchange, she offered the entire fifth grade class Chinese food when they studied China in geography. <laughs> so she was like, a, my mom was like a hustler, man. And, you know, it. yeah, it I was it. very cool. Mm -hmm. And so like, what's your relationship like with your brother and sister as you know, in, what's it like being with in business with your brother and sister? You know, people ask me that a lot. And I the, the one thing that I can say it's high risk, high reward. Um, <laughs> people, people take family for granted in, in a lot of ways. And one is like, oh, yeah, you can you can call them out for bullshit or what you, am I allowed to curse on this oh, thing? Yeah. All yeah. Right, this so, is chefs being interviewed. Right, we can't right. make this family friendly. All right, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to start smoking a joint then. <laughs> no, no. Um, but, um, you, you know, like, and I, it's high risk, high reward because with family, you, you can cross the lines. You can call them out. You don't have the boxing gloves come off, right? There's no etiquette needed because you're your family. You've been through the thick and through thick and thin with them. Um, and because of that, you know, it, the highs are highs and the lows are lows. You just have to have boundaries. There, you know, there's a lot of history be behind us now because of the restaurants. Um, but you grow too because of all that drama. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they're going to have your back. But it's not something that I would recommend. And you really need to know your family members before you dive into it. But yeah, I still love them to death. Obviously, if we weren't cool, they would not be part in involved or you know, be partners in, in, in Juniper. And I would not have named Juniper after my sister's daughter, my niece. Can you tell people about Juniper who might not know uh, what it is? Yeah, so Juniper Cafe is the new concept I'm opening up. Uh, it's kind of a modern take on Vietnamese food. Uh, it's also going to have a, a little bakery element to it. Um, and the reason why I love Vietnamese food is I'm Chinese and I have a lot of formal French training. I went to a French culinary school and worked at Le Bernardin for 10 years. And I also ran a Vietnamese restaurant in New York. Yeah, And so yeah. that's mm -hmm. right. So Vietnamese food has always been like this perfect intersection of my, my cultural influences in my life. Um, you know, so we're going to do our own spin on Vietnamese food and also have a, a badass bakery program, homemade croissants, homemade brioche, homemade baguettes. Um, we're going to have a big, gooey, chunky chocolate, like chocolate chip cookie. And, you, you, you know, and it's just a it's a it's a way for me to express myself in another platform, not just tasting menu and fancy food. And, and you know, being that I'm a father now. I really like cooking food that's a little more accessible to kids and stuff. And, and Vietnamese food is very communal based. You sit around a table and eat together. You know, it's just kind of indicative of my, my, my next stage in life as well. So, I mean, um, how has becoming a dad changed you? I mean, I know it's changed the way I view food a lot, right. becoming a mom. Um, has it changed your cooking style? I mean, if people don't know who you are, Ron's restaurant is is a really 
high-end tasting menu, high-concept tasting menu, but you can like go in jeans and sneakers and feel totally at home. Great wines, great service. So this is quite a departure for you. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I don't think it it's really changed much with on in terms of what or how I cook. Uh, you can ask my wife because she's used to uh, me cooking fancy stuff. You know, like if I make a steak, I'm probably making like a pan sauce and training it and mounting it. <laughs> fanning with it out in slices. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fanning it out. But then when my daughter came around, I started cooking more just casual stuff. And my wife was like, "What? what like, I? How come you never cook? She she never thought I could cook more casual food. You know. So I guess it's just giving me the opportunity since instead of cooking for two, I'm cooking for three. And one's a, a little, you know, two-year-old monster. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it gives me the opportunity to more opportunity to show different style of cooking. I would say though, it, being a father, what has changed me the most isn't how I cook. It's probably how I teach and how I interact with my my staff more, especially those that are greener and not as experienced. Um, I've got a whole new level of patience. You know, when I was at La Bernadette, I was like. I was a ball buster. Like your carrots are a quarter inch to the side too much. Like your, your, your fish needs to be cooked for 30 seconds less. Like, you know, little things like that. And now it's a little more measured in my approach. There's a lot more positive reinforcement than, than criticism uh, in, in the way I kind of, you know, influence the staff, um, especially my, my, my chefs. Why so, is that because of like you value mental health? I mean, it's a huge issue right now. You know, oh, yeah. do people have the work-life balance working in this industry? Yeah, I think you have to have work-life balance. You've worked in restaurants, right, Jen? So yeah. you know how restaurant turnover is crazy and cooks don't get paid a lot. And so you have to take care of them. You have to give them a reason to come back. And so if you can create the right environment where they where they feel valued and they're learning and not just earning a paycheck, then they'll come back. Um, they'll, they'll stay there. Uh, and I, I can honestly say we've only lost one cook in the last year. You, you know, like our turnover wow. at Lazy low. Betty is extremely low. Like we don't, you hear of all these people having staffing issues, like Lazy Betty does not have staffing issues. We're, we've had the same the same cooks for a very long time. And that's part of it. Like if, if I had the, if La Bernadette or if Lazy Betty had the prestige of La Bernadette where people are willing to give up their life to go work there, then I may not need to be as kind or patient, but you know, these cooks also aren't as experienced as some of the people at La Bernadette. So you gotta, you gotta nurture them a little bit more. Well, the culture has evolved, you know, I mean, when you were back there being that precise was part of the culture. And right. that was expected at that level. You're in Manhattan and it's, you know, a Michelin starred restaurant. That's but, right. Yeah. But just, you know, as if Lazy Betty did not have enough challenges with its opening, COVID hit. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are a tasting menu only restaurant, or although you were you've you've gone back with a la carte and not, I'm not sure where you guys landed pre-COVID. Right. Um, but you were a high contact hospitality. You're, you know, you're the kind of chef that if you eat at your chef's table, you come or you and Aaron or a Sue come and explain the dish and where these things are from and why you're doing it now and the season. What, what happened like for you guys when COVID hit? I mean, it just completely changed the game for us. We were, there was a bunch of anxiety I sat down with my sous chef, Alson Geitzman, and I was like, hey, man, like, I'm talking, you know, I'm talking to you like a human being right now, not as a chef or your your boss. Like, 
shit's about to hit the fan with COVID. And I would advise you to like save as much money as you can, cancel whatever subscriptions you don't need, blah, blah, blah. You know, and that's how serious it was for me. And it's ironic because literally the day after I had that conversation with him, we we made the decision to close down and it was frightening. And we were like, you know, we had to furlough everyone. So no one had a paycheck. It was very um, in the dark. Right. We were my whole my whole outlook was in the dark. My wife wasn't working. I had a one year old, one and a half year old at home. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to provide, you know, so we did that for a month. Uh, we closed down and then then we opened up and did takeout, which was which was okay. It was great for the first month. We were very busy, still nowhere near where we were before in terms of our uh, fi- like financial well-being. But it did help us stay afloat. And but but that that wound off very fast after after six weeks. It was very slow, uh, and that's when we decided we need to reopen the business or the dining room, um, or we're gonna not make it. But luckily, you know. We're the type of restaurant where we can control a lot of the elements. Uh, we're mostly reservations. We also don't cr- cram in our our tables like a lot of restaurants do. And so for us to go from get, get down to a 50% capacity, we were already at 60%. So we literally you know, had to get rid of like two or three tables. Hmm. Um, and we also had a patio that we weren't using. We were using it for like family meet or uh, staff meetings and staff meal. But then and we kind of... pop-ups too, right? That's right, pop-ups. Uh, so what we did was then we dolled up the the patio a little bit. You know, we couldn't spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars, but we put a little money into it. And then we reopened. And it, it wasn't when? good. Reopened the dining room, I want to say mid-May. Okay. We reopened mm-hmm. the dining room. And it was... It was tough. Uh, we didn't know what we, how the how custom response would be. There was always this overhanging cloud that like, man, coronavirus could hit us at any time. So we were all super paranoid, you know, and after we operated like that for about a month, we were like, all right, well, we basically were breaking even, which we were like, all right, great. If as long as it doesn't get worse, and we can break even and, and things can lighten up, then we'll be all right. Um, but it was hard. It was not good to manage that way. You know, staff was very uncomfortable. There was a lot of meetings about safety protocols. Um, people, it was always a high stress situation because of COVID. It, it, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, right? If, <laughs> if that if that was like the long term scenario, we, after a year, we would probably be like, look, it's not worth breaking even and coming to work and like being paranoid all the time. But luckily, fa- fast forward one year later, um, things have lined up. And, you know, we'll be all right. Like Lazy Betty, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get through it. Um, you know, over half our staff has now gotten the vaccine. And I'm very lucky to say, like, I'm proud to say that over the course of the year, we only had one person get coronavirus. And they got it outside of work on their day off. Wow. So, like, we had times where, like, people are like, oh, yeah, somebody I knew had it. And we we're like, all right, just stay home. But out of all our staff, only one person actually caught it. So you are you are doing tasting menus. That's right. Um, what does it feel and look like if I were to come and eat in your restaurant right now? What would the protocol be like? I mean, one of these questions that keep coming up for me in these conversations are, you know, can you really have contact-free hospitality? How are you guys doing it at Lazy Betty? I, I love that you asked that question. Um, I think you can have contact-free hospitality, but it's very limited, and you can't. You can only do so much, you, you know, when we were doing the takeout and not having any contact, you know, we would do little things like leave someone's bag with their name on it, a thank you note. Um, we would bring it out to their car. 
um, offer them a glass, you know, glass of water while they're waiting and try to avoid contact. But there's only so much hospitality you can show. And, and so much of our restaurant is emotional, right? It's knowing that the guest likes a gin martini with that's shaken and not stirred, uh, using, you know, Bombay Sapphire instead of another gin. That's, to me, that's hospitality, knowing that they like to have uh, their red wine chilled five degrees lower than normal people. And, you know, and we go to those, we go to those extents to try to offer that level of service. Um, so there's only so much you can offer. Um, but if you were coming now, you know, we, we, when we, the pandemic was fresh, we were offering a temperature check for people, but no one really wanted to get their temperature checked at the restaurant. Um, we did it with staff for the first few months. It's um, medical theater. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it is medical theater. I mean, I'll be honest, I, we have these plexiglass windows on our chef's counter now, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to bet if someone sat at the counter with the coronavirus, the glass is not going to. Yes, it, it builds well, up in the air, which is why I have not eaten in a restaurant yet, even though wow. I'm fully vaccinated. It's yeah. very interesting, though, because my parents, they live in New York. Now, at every restaurant you go to, whether it's tacos, numero uno, or Ipuro ramen, they take all of your contact information before you can even eat at the restaurant, which wow. is wise. You know, yeah, I think that's is. a really smart choice. So the restaurant is back up and running. You know, you guys are obviously doing okay. So tell me again. So I come in, are masks optional? Are no, they- ma- masks are, guests need to wear masks uh, when they come in and when they get seated. And if they're at the table eating mm-hmm. or at their table, they can turn their mask off, but take their mask off. But if they're going to go up for a cigarette smoke outside or walk through the dining room to get to the restroom, then they they need to put their mask back on. You know, we've set up a ton of hand sanitizer stations everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you were sitting on our patio and you walked to the bathroom, you probably walk by four, four to five. Uh, you know, obviously we're all wearing masks and stuff and we're just all hyper, hyper clean. Um, but we've also staggered our, our, our reservation so that there's less people waiting in our reservation areas. Um, and that, there's less people in the building at one time. Um, but that being said, we were already at 60% capacity. So we, we didn't had, did not have to actually adjust the number of people in our restaurant. And, and the fact that we opened up our, our uh, patio, we can actually seat more people now than before, ironically. <laughs> um, so, so are you doing dishes? Like I remember one of my favorite dishes was that poached salmon in that parm broth with like oh yeah and i was like i I just never had had parmesan with salmon before which is weird and having in that broth but so they would pour at the table plate it for you a la minute or what what have you is that kind of stuff still happening yeah yeah that kind of stuff is still happening and you feel it's safe i mean like i'm not like I'm not like loading it here. No, no, I, 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 no, I do feel it's safe. We, we haven't had any issues with COVID. Um, You know, I would say like our staff is extremely safe. uh, Being being that we've only had one person get it in the last year and we've, you know, you know, we're serving um, a lot of people. Um, And I think because of the style of dining we, we have where it's not as cramped and there's no shared plates. We, we drop new silverware every, every course it limits the cross contamin the potential to cross contaminate with each other, right? 
Whereas if you go to like, you know, I know you love Chinese food because I've read a lot oh, of your yeah. reviews. You know, if you go to a Chinese restaurant with four people, you guys are probably eating all communally, right? Lazy Betty, you're getting your own, your own silverware. There's no shared utensils and stuff like that. And so it's a very controlled dining experience um, that we offer. Um, and, you know, not many restaurants can offer that, right? Uh, but because that is kind of what we do already, it does allow us to have less potential like uh, health risk. So again, you know, the past year has really, I feel like it has been the most packed year of my adult life. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. in terms of politics, social justice, health concerns, global pandemic. But one of the things that has happened, and I'm not sure if, if this percentage is correct, but I saw somewhere that 1900% increase in anti-Asian violence. And you are an Asian chef who grew up in the South child of immigrants, you know, I was a child of immigrants. I'm an immigrant. I grew up in the South. I mean, it was definitely challenging. What has all of this been like for you? And what was it like growing up as an Asian kid in Georgia? Were you discriminated against? Oh, yeah. I mean, I experienced a lot of racism growing up, you know, they happened in all areas of my life, whether it was at school, at my parents' restaurant working, it was very prevalent. You know, as an adult, as a chef, I've been very lucky, I think, the last year, especially when all this anti or all this Asian violence has has surfaced or kind of risen. I'm lucky. I haven't personally experienced it. I've been very lucky. But I definitely know of pe some people that have experienced some violence. And I guess the only thing that I can personally speak about this is that you have to go, sometimes you do have to take two steps back to make progress, right? And every generation is going to have their fights. And this is our generation's fight, right? You know, if you look back at the civil rights movements, that was our parent, our grandparents or parents fight. Um, and this is our fight. The thing that I would like to say is that you have to be empathetic to people. You, you should need to listen to people without getting angered or triggered. And you have to give people the right to have their own opinion. It doesn't mean you have to hate them or or divide against them. And that and that really just kind of comes from my mom and growing up in the deep south, you know, like my mom experienced a ton of racism, but she also showed a lot of love to people. And it's not necessarily people that are racist aren't necessarily it's not necessarily their fault. It's a product of their environment to a certain degree, right? And I feel like no matter what you do, if, if, you're, if you're fighting racism with more hate, then it's never going to end. You have to sooner or later just be like, you know what, if you're racist, it's fine. I'm still going to love you. And at the end of the day, you do the best you can. Um, you help who you can. You lift other people up when you can. And for those that want to keep kicking people down, you, you fight for the little people, you, you know, and you, you do what you can. And you got to stay positive and stay focused and just keep pushing. And this issue is not going to change. And, and if it does, if it ever becomes a non-issue, we're still talking about hundreds and hundreds of years, right? You know, everyone thought. So you don't rights. like, I mean, you don't feel discriminated against as an Asian chef? Not necessarily. I think there's other issues in, in the industry where there's discrimination going on. It may not be conscious. I think there's a lot of institutional issues going on in terms of disparity and stuff. Like, for example, the tip credit, right? Um, are you familiar with the tip credit? Uh, no, please tell so, me about it. So the tip credit is basically what allows restaurants to pay servers or anyone that earns tips a sub-minimum wage. Um, what people don't realize is that tip credit has history and it derives from slavery. So when, when the slaves were emancipated, the owners needed a way to basically keep their, their labor 
but at a almost f- very low rate, like a very basically at a free free wage, and that's where the tip credit came in. So the so the slave owners, I guess, you know, they had a lot of political power back then because of their wealth and their position within the within society. Pushed this tip credit out, and it gave them a way to pay this, their slaves that are now employees a very low amount of money. Um, and they expected the general public to make up for this loss in wage through tips. And a I lot did of the, not know this. Yeah, so this. a lot of the history came from Europe, where there were tip. You know, some European countries tip and some don't, but. What they're disregarding is that a lot of European restaurants back then were already paying the living wage and the tips were just like a bonus. It wasn't to supplement the living wage. You fast forward now to 2021, you know, the tip credit has ironically kind of changed the way servers get paid versus back of the house. So typically in most restaurants, servers make a lot more money than the back of the house. And ironically enough, if you look at minorities and where they work within a restaurant, the vast majority work in the back of the house. And so ironically enough, this thing, the tip credit, which was put in place to kind of give slave owners a way to pay their, their, their quote unquote new employees less, you fast forward to society today. Now the servers are usually well-educated, well-spoken people. They earn a lot more money and work less where a lot of the dishwashers and cooks are minorities are working more hours and working, making even less money. And that's one way. But she always used to drive me nuts when I was in the back of the house because like we work so hard and it's so hot and it's so hard on our bodies and not not for nothing for people that are front of the house, but I, I never have gotten that. Just if, if you're a woman and you're a minority, it's much worse in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not if you're in the back or the front of the house. You know, if you look at restaurant workers, they're not, they're not the, one percent they're like the 60 percent you know like it's very representative of what's going on within our country and so if you look at all the the social issues that have come up in the last year and you look at the restaurant industry there's a lot of parallels going on and Mm -hmm. and for me now that we have people's ears and people's uh people are willing to listen which is the most important people have to be willing to listen before you can make any change i think now is the time as restaurateurs and people that are can make it make a change now's the time you have to push that needle if if things go back to normal and there's no change then you miss that you miss that opportunity what do you think is going to happen to restaurants now that was like the last question i wanted to ask you was where are we post covid what is your prediction everyone has a thing like i interviewed this this real estate guy and he thinks that people are forgetful and in a year we'll be back to dining without partitions and everything like that what do you think? I mean, for me, I kind of love the control alt delete, I like to say, and I've been repeating that through a lot of these episodes that this has pushed a lot of people to evolve that either weren't ready, or people have just hung their shingles and done really cool things right. this year. It's been a really interesting year for creatives. But what where do we go from here as an industry? What does what does the restaurant world look like? Po- I want to say post COVID because it's not gone. But now that people are back out there, I think you're gonna always have face masks around now. I think you're gonna have people that are much more sensitive to uh, health protocols in restaurants. But I think people are gonna slowly start dining out again. Um, just a, with a little more reluctance, right? COVID has also p- probably made the industry a little more efficient. So if you were kind of a poor operator or your financials weren't really good, then it probably weeded out any restaurants that were going to 
close eventually, just maybe accelerated that. So I think in that regard, that's going to happen. Um, but something that I would love to see happen, and I've seen little bits and changes of it going on, is people are instituting a service charge. Um, I know Jenner Mir does it. It's a twenty percent charge right off right off the right off the rip. So everything you order ends up you they add out another twenty percent. And I think that's good because you know if your a service charge is not technically a an a um, an optional gratuity left by this by the guests, so it allows businesses to kind of disperse that money however they want. You know, if they want to be equal employers and treat people fairly, then they would give some of that to the back of the house and really help with that pay disparity. You know, and I think the fact that COVID has brought stimulus checks and a very high unemployment has caused a lot of recognition to the fact that, you know, cooks can't find a job right now, or sorry, restaurants can't find cooks. Everyone is posting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, the real the real issue at heart is that restaurants weren't paying their people a livable wage, you, you know. So you're competing with the stimulus check that's supposed to help people live. So like that's a real issue, you know. And I hope that once COVID passed, that this forces the industry to kind of recalibrate. I also hope it helps the general public become more sensitive to how tight restaurants are and the margins, how tight they are. And I hope that it does recalibrate, kind of like your control all delete, right? I hope people can kind of clear their their mindset on how restaurants are, and see that oh yeah, th- there's a service charge now. This is why um, COVID's only raising raising the cost of operating even more and making the margins even even higher. Um, and then you're gonna have labor shortages because of you know people competing, employers and competing with health insurance. So or not health insurance, but with stimulus checks. So at the end of the day, I think it's gonna it's gonna force restaurants to recalibrate. I think it's gonna make it better. Um, I hope it makes it better, and it just depends on the individual operator. Like, are you gonna make it so that your staff rather come work for you than collect an, an unemployment check? And you can't. I just really wonder fo- what's gonna happen with more of the immigrant-run restaurants on Buford Highway and in Gwinnett and stuff. I wonder how they're gonna fare. I saw. Guy Wong posted that his mother's longtime restaurant had closed and he's going to be taking it over to do Big Boss Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just wonder how these smaller mom and pop spots that are immigrant run are going to fare. Yeah, I think the mom and pop restaurants are probably going to be the hardest hit. Uh, I think there's going to need to be a lot of community support and they got a, hopefully they all got the PPP loan um, because the PPP loan really got Lazy Betty through 2020 and is helping us get through, helping us get through 2021. Uh, I know a lot of my cousins who have parents that can't read English have been helping their parents apply for the PPP loan for their restaurants that they've ended up opening all around the Southeast. And so hopefully they're taking advantage of that. And I hope that their landlords are lenient and hopeful. But yeah, those are the restaurants that really the community needs to go out and support. I I think I went to Northern Eatery China or China, Northern China Eatery like a month ago and ate about $35 worth of dumplings by myself, which was I great. I just talked about them extensively yeah. with another yeah. one of my interviews. Uh, she yeah. goes, uh, Candy Hom, she goes by Suit Belly. She told mm-hmm. me that they actually, that Northern sells their dumplings they frozen. Do. So you can mm-hmm. take the. 
But so do you have anything that you would like to promote or plug? Do you want to talk about Juniper when it's opening, where it is, anything, any initiatives you're doing, anything you're doing to help your staff? I mean, you know, I, I thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about something that's very near and dear to me. I would love to promote the new restaurant, but I think there's more important things that we need to talk about. And that's really um, the disparity between pay between the front and the back of the house um, and the tip credit. Restaurateurs need to really take a hard look at how they can run their business. Um, one thing I would like to say is if you pay everyone minimum wage, the gratuity can be split however you want amongst the restaurant staff. So not all of it has to go to the front of the house. Uh, something that also allow, that gives you more flexibility is if you pay everyone a minimum wage as a restaurant owner, your other staff members, so I believe front of the house has to do 80% of their work hours that are, they have to be service related. But if you pay the minimum wage, they're not tied to that anymore, which means you get more flexibility as an operator to kind of use your staff how you need. You know, also for for listeners that aren't in the industry that it, it's very hard for a lot of the back of the house. Um, a lot of times they, they can't even afford health insurance. You know, Lazy Betty offers it, but if there's anything you guys can do, if you leave a tip and you want to share it with the back of the house, you can declare that the tips go to the back of the house to help with the oh, pay disparity. Cool. That's right. And if the restaurant operators are, are good and honest, then they will give the, the, the tip to the back of the house. Um, but I think it's just important that, you know, we, we take this opportunity um, with COVID and all the social uh, issues that are being brought up that we take a hard look at our industry and see what we can do to make it fairer for everyone involved. Um, and for me, part of it is like pay everyone a higher minimum wage or the minimum wage and help either institute a service charge or split the tips amongst all the employees. And that, and that's really kind of where, where I'm at um, with, with this. It'll, that's, so that's thank awesome. you. I really love your restaurant. I, I haven't been in a while, but well, I haven't we, gone I inside it. of a restaurant except for takeout. So, but um, I can't wait to try Juniper. Um, I'm very excited to see your take on Vietnamese food. It sounds awesome. like a fancy Lee's Bakery almost. Maybe. It's <laughs> definitely going to have more of a European and French nice. influence. Nice. Um, we're going to utilize a lot of homemade uh, sausages and hams, but not like Ooh. the funky, like, you know, pig's ear terrine you would find, but we're going to do like, you know, pâtés. More uh, like balloud type of stuff. Yeah. 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 Balloud type of stuff. Um, but with, you know, the, the, the herbaceousness and freshness of Vietnamese cuisine. So. And when is that opening fun. though? Uh, permitting is very slow right now because of <laughs> COVID and stuff. So we're hoping, we're hoping by, by August, but you, you can't hold me to that. Uh, we, I would say, late summer fall is kind of yeah, just how do, I'm just, keeping it. <laughs> just do seasons. That's what I always tell you. Yes, do seasons. Right. Go do months. Yep, well, thank yep. you so much for being here, Ron. It was really great to talk to you about stuff that's not just your beautiful food. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me and um, congratulations on your podcast. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Food That Binds. Thank you for listening and thanks to Ron for taking the time to speak with me. Please follow him on Instagram as Ron Sue. Lazy Buddy or Juniper Cafe. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds. Please don't forget to rate and review because it helps other people find the podcast. 
Next week, I'm joined by Julia Kessler-Immerman, the holistic chef whose brainchild meal delivery service Stop Think Chew has taken over the Atlanta prepared meal game. She leverages relationships with local farmers to use the best of the best produce, and she's currently in the process of opening a restaurant. We talked about everything from her grandmother, who was called the Julia Child of South Africa, and what it means to be healthy and have a balanced relationship with food. And her food is just amazing, which I can say because I'm a regular client. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.